Good evening. I always forget my cue is much earlier on Sunday nights than it is on Sunday mornings. I was not prepared for that. <clears throat> Welcome back to the, the Dover Church of Christ. We're glad to have you with us this evening. Um, I've gotten several compliments on our church sign, which I love, but I can't take credit for it. So I've got a shout out to Philip and Brenda. They've been coming up with all sorts of fun, cute sayings to put out there that are always kind of funny and tied to our lessons. So I'm very grateful for them. We began this morning uh, with our lesson titled, Lord, Teach Us to Pray. And that will be our continuing theme this evening. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. And as Jeff mentioned, we'll leave uh, some time at the end of our service to to allow our young men to come forward and sing any songs if there are any. And if you are not with us or you missed this smart part of this morning's lesson, I encourage you to go online and to, to find it or to listen to it and go back to hear it at some point and sort of catch up. But I'll get us up to speed just a little bit because we've been studying Jesus' instructions on prayer. And he begins in Matthew chapter 6, verse 5. We said that we'll deal with the first few verses of Matthew 6 next week. But he gives in Matthew chapter 6, verse 5, and he says, When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and the street corners that they may be seen by others. And so we talked about how Jesus' first words here are likely directed at the Pharisees, at the religious officials, and he says, Do not be like the hypocrites, meaning don't put on a mask, don't pretend to be somebody you're not when you pray. He says the Pharisees pray to be seen by others. So Jesus says, Do not pray to be seen. And in verse 7, he says, When you do pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. And so he says, Do not pray as the heathens or as the pagans do. Do not heap up empty phrases. We do not pray to be seen, but we do not pray just to be heard. God does not prioritize or order our prayers in order of their elegance. He doesn't listen to those of us who are more convincing or persuasive with our, with our wordsmithing. He says, God knows your every need. And so we don't have to pray that we might win God's favor. That's how the, the pagans pray. We don't need to manipulate God into helping us. And so Jesus says, instead, pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Jesus calls them to respect the weight and the glory of God, while at the same time developing this close relationship with him that we might call him our Father. Paul says in Romans 8.15 that we did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but we have received the spirit of adoption as sons, that we might cry, Abba, Father. He goes on saying, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, in earth as in heaven. Jesus says when we pray, we are to recognize total submission to God. He is our Father who loves us, whose commands we submit to. He is the one whose will for our life must take precedent over all other things. We looked at that example of Jesus in the garden in Luke 22. How even when on the precipice of crucifixion, Jesus prayed not for his own will, but for the Father's. And so if Jesus can pray such a radical, daring prayer in the face of death, so then we too can in all things pray not our will, but God's be done. Then he says, give us this day our daily bread. There we go, that's a little better. Give us simply what we need for today. We, we don't need to be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Reading this passage, I shared one illustration this morning, I'll share a different one tonight. But reading this passage always reminds me a little bit of the first time as an adult I realized how differently men and women think. 
or at least how differently my wife and I think. I'll say that. Um, when Priscilla was pregnant with Luke, I worked for a furniture delivery company. And uh, we would drive all over Middle Tennessee and North Alabama. And I'd, so I'd be in the box truck for about 200, 300 miles a day, sometimes 500. And when Priscilla was pregnant, she was terrified something was going to happen to me on the road. And, that, and she was just so mortified at the idea that she'd be left alone to raise this child. And so finally one time I come home, and she's telling me again how worried she was. And I want you to know, I thought this every day, but I only said it one day. So it's really not that bad. But I, thought, I always thought this, and so this time I said, well, that's, that's silly, babe. There's nothing you can do about it, so just, just don't worry about it. Think about something else. And some of you are laughing because you realize how stupid this is. But, but I'm, I'm thinking back to other times my friends and I would talk about certain things with our jobs or with relationships and guy friends and I just sitting around talking. And, and you know, the, in that situation, that's a perfectly acceptable answer. We'd say that, like, oh, you know what, you're right. I, I, there's nothing I can do. I shouldn't worry about it. And just like that, I stopped worrying about it. Well, that was not at all how it went talking to my pregnant wife. I found out that this was not helpful advice at all. I say that because if you are dealing with a lot and worrying about a lot, sometimes Jesus' words might sound a little dismissive. And so I would caution you or encourage you that Jesus does not mean this in a way that is dismissive of your worries or, or to belittle your problems. And for the record, neither did I, just so we're clear. He's not dismissive and he's not trying to minimize what you're going through in recovery programs, in a, in a things like that. They, they give you a gold coin if you're there and you have made it 24 hours of sobriety. And there's a little saying on it that says one day at a time. Because they realize that a successful life is one that is made up of individually successful years. And, and a successful year in this context is just built upon successful weeks. And a week is just getting up seven days in a row and choosing one day at a time to make better, healthier choices. And so they say one day at a time. And I think that's what Jesus is really saying. That it's not to, that tomorrow's problems don't matter. It's, it, he knows that just by asking you not to worry, that doesn't snap the fingers and fix all of your problems. But he's telling you to recognize that a successful spiritual walk consists of choosing to follow Jesus one day at a time. That tomorrow has enough worries of its own. And so he says, give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Now, verse 12 is a very significant part. Sorry, to everybody listening at home who's now deaf. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. So verse 12 is a very significant part of this prayer, which is why I kind of broke it off from this morning's lesson so that we would kind of have time to talk about it a little bit more length. But it's, it's significant because it expresses what might be a very scary thought when it comes to forgiveness. Almost every translation renders this line the same. All of them forgive our debts as we forgive our debtors. But what I think can be overlooked is that the word as there communicates this idea of likewise, of how, the method of how, or in the same manner. Meaning that Jesus says, pray that God will forgive you in the same manner that you forgive others. And in case you're missing why this might be a little scary, he clarifies down in verse 14. He says, for if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you forgive not 
men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. I believe in the Word of God and in obedience to the Word of God for salvation. I believe in the grace of God and the power of God to forgive sin. But it is a scary thought to me that Jesus is presenting here. But if we forgive not, neither will your Father forgive. I sometimes, occasionally I hear somebody add, live faithfully if they're listing the steps of salvation. But I would say I've never heard, oh, and by the way, number six, forgive everyone who has hurt you. Otherwise, your sins will not be forgiven. But the Bible says quite plainly, Matthew 6, 15, if you do not forgive, neither will you be forgiven. That's the seriousness that Jesus is communicating forgiveness. Forgiveness and graciousness was of incredible significance to Jesus. Later on in Matthew, in Matthew 18, in the parable of the unforgiving servant, Jesus explains that it's, it's foolish for us to hold somebody accountable for such a relatively small debt when we ourselves have been forgiven of a debt so great and so massive that we could never have paid it back on our own. At the end of that parable in Matthew 18, the servant who was forgiven the great debt but who had beaten one who owed him a small debt, that servant was taken by the master to the jailers, and it says he was punished until he could repay the full amount of what he was owed. Jesus says in Matthew 18, 35, So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. Because of the context of the parable and the audience of his disciples... In Matthew 18, Jesus attaches this sort of condition that we forgive our brothers and sisters this way, our family this way, our fellow Christians. But in Matthew 6, Jesus says we owe that level of forgiveness to everyone who sins against us. You might hear that and think, well, well brother, you, you don't know the way I've been sinned against. Or you don't understand the way I've been hurt by, by, by people in this world. And I would say... Yeah, you're right. I don't know, but Jesus did. Hebrews 4.15 says, We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. He himself suffered when he was tempted, therefore he is able to help those who are being tempted. Hebrews 2.18 He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and misguided, since he himself is beset by weakness, Hebrews 5.12. I mentioned this morning that nobody practices what they preach like Jesus. That nobody lived as an example the kind of life they call us through God's word to live as Jesus did. So if you read, forgive just as you are forgiven, and you think, well, well, God doesn't know my pain. He doesn't understand what I've been through. He doesn't really get my hurt. I would suggest you read passages like those in Hebrews. I would suggest you read passages like Luke 23, where as Jesus is being put to the cross, it says the people stood beholding him, the rulers stood by with them deriding him, and the soldiers were mocking him. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus calls us to pray for forgiveness. To, to pray that we might have the ability to forgive others because Jesus himself knows what it means to truly, truly forgive. And he concludes his prayer 
by saying, Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. If you're reading in versions other than the old or the new King James, you, you probably have that last line down in the footnotes, but not up with the text. And, and that's something I can explain another time. But I, I include the doxology, as it's called, with that last line. Because it presents this contrast that the, the, the temptation and the evil we face in the world versus the one who really has the power and the authority. The prayer kind of ends in the same way it begins with, with him at the foot of the throne proclaiming the magnificence of God. It affirms that the power within us is greater than that in the world. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 24, he says, Then comes the end, when Jesus delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The Bible tells us there will come a time at the end of days that Christ will reign over all things. There's nothing that can stand against him. There's no power greater than him. There's no authority bigger than the authority that he has. 1 John 4, 4 says, even to the little ones, to the little children, he says, they are, even they are greater than the evil forces at work in the world. He writes in 1 John 4, 4, the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. If we belong to the Lord, then nothing can snatch us out of his hand. There is no power of evil or temptation around that is greater than the power that belongs to the king and his kingdom. And a few more things I want to say, really just as clothing, closing thoughts from our lessons on, our multiple lessons on prayer today. I would say I am often guilty of what I would call inner monologue prayer. Where I don't really have time to, to, you know, close my eyes, bow my head, sit on my knees and all that. And so I just sort of think these thoughts aloud and I feel like, you know, that's, well, that's better than nothing. And I think that's probably true. It's better than nothing. But I would also suggest it, it's pretty close to nothing. It's insufficient. I would argue if we can, we ought to speak the words when we pray. I can't find you a head for bow, uh, find you a scripture for bowing your head and closing your eyes, but I would suggest that you do what you can to remove the distractions around you when you pray, so that your heart and your mind can be set on the words you are speaking to God. I say if we can, we ought to speak the words aloud when we pray so that we remind ourselves to consider carefully what it is we are asking of God, what it is we're saying to our Father. Not because our words have the ability to, to instruct or, or manipulate God, but because speaking to God is what God desires. He tells us that's what he wants us to do. He wants us to talk to him to talk to him in a way that's honest, to talk to him in a way that's open, to talk to him in a way that conveys all of our deepest emotions. When we say, hallowed be your name, we are reminding ourselves to, to desire that his name be holy, that, that that name above all names always will be holy, but also that, that we would like it to be considered holy by all men, and not just us. As for saying, your kingdom come, well... The kingdom will surely arrive, whether we will it or not. But when we pray that, we, we stir up a longing for his kingdom. We, we stir up a desire that Christ might dwell in us, that, that we could somehow potentially be worthy to reign alongside him, as he says we will. When we say, deliver us from evil, 
we're reminding ourselves to maybe take a moment and reflect that, that the state that we're in is not yet the state of perfection that we will someday enjoy. It is not the blessedness that we will someday enjoy. We are not quite there to the place where we will suffer no evil. And so we pray, deliver us from evil. There are a number of stock phrases I think we can use in prayer. And originally I wanted to talk about this at a greater length, but for the sake of time, a lot of things got cut from these lessons here. But there's a lot of crutch sentences and expressions we use. I mentioned this morning that we sort of just catch on these things that other people say. I mean, you've heard them, you know them, we've probably all said them. When Jesus instructed his disciples, when he spoke to us on how to pray, he instructed them in these words. And whether these exact words are how we choose to pray or not, we would do well to remember that these are the words Jesus chose. And I hope that some of Jesus' words will find their way into our little word bank of stock phrases and expressions that we use. I hope when we pray, we remember the weight and the glory of God's name while also desiring a relationship with him that mimics one of a father and a child. I hope when we pray, we, we desire God's will and God's kingdom above all of those inner desires that we have. I pray that we can ask him humbly just enough for today, our daily bread. And I pray that we can have hearts that forgive others just, just as God gave us. For those of us who are members of Christ's body, who would dare to take on that name Christian, I would, I would challenge you to reflect on how you pray and on what you pray for. But if you were with us tonight and you were not part of the body, if you want to know what it means to call on the one we call Father, if you want to learn what it means to be a child of God, to be one who has knowledge and obedience to his word and obedience to his commands and his instructions, we can make that decision now. If your invitation is for you, we ask that you come while we stand and while we sing. Ooh,